Do please sit down. Just uh, wait for uh, Steve to turn off some lights. There we go. If there was a title for this sermon, it would be Does Your God Bite? Uh, I'd like to begin with uh, a clip from a classic Pink Panther movie. As Inspector Clouseau has just checked into an Alpine hotel. Does your dear go back? Oh. I thought you said your dog did not bite. That is not my dog. Thank you. It is very fashionable in some circles, especially the new atheism, to deny the existence of God. But to the charge, your God does not exist, we can often answer, that is not my God. The God in which so many people do not believe is not the God of the Scriptures. And sadly, the question is whether we ourselves, who say we believe, are believing in the God of the Scriptures, a God whose ways are grace and who looks to us for trust. And that question is opened up for us in our reading from Romans tonight. We've been in this uh, section of Romans for a while now, and we continue tonight. And so I invite you to turn to it first, to chapter 11, verse 1. Mark said at the beginning it's a complicated passage, which it is. Um, but I've, uh, I stopped at verse 24 so that he can have the joy of expounding it from verse 25, which is the most complicated bit, next week. But can we pray together first? Almighty God, we want to uh, be those who can go out into our world tomorrow believing in a God who has significance, who has bite, makes a difference. And we want to say that that is our God. And so we ask that as we study your word this evening, you'd enlighten our minds and fire up our hearts all over again with a passion for who you are and your purposes in the world you've made. Amen. Well, predictably, three sections all about the movement, the dynamic of God all based on an assumption that God's grace is the way forward. First, what has happened, then what will happen, and then finally, what must happen. First, in verses 1 to 10, what has happened if grace is the way forward? Chapter 9 asked, what, uh, how did the good news of Jesus come to us? And then chapter 10 points out it was never the case that all Israelites individually were saved. And so chapter 11 is asking the question, well, what can be behind such apparent rejection? And verses 1 to 6 set up 
the historical facts around what has happened. Let's remember, says Paul, that there was a time when God's own man had to say to God, look, your own people have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left. And God's response was not to say, oh, you are so wrong. No, he knows absolutely what has happened. But he says, no, what you're wrong about is that you're the only one left, because I've actually chosen some, a number, who've not given in. I've been faithful to my promises. Have you forgotten, Elijah, that I promised there would be this people? So I can't let the whole people uh, burn down my altars uh, uh, and, and be faithless. There must be a faithful remnant that I'm going to choose. <clears throat> and Paul says, yes, and look at, me, look at me now in our own day. <clears throat> I myself, Paul, am an example of those rescued in this way. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin, verse 1. <clears throat> and I'm not alone. There's a remnant at this present time too. And if they're chosen because of grace, that remnant simply so that God can keep faithful to his promise, then it's obvious that they cannot be being saved by their own goodness, their own works. Well, then 7 to 10 tells us what happened to those not among the elect, the remnant. They were, and this is a special word, they were hardened. Well, that seems bizarre. Can it be God who hardened them? Well, yes, it can. That's what Paul says. As he looks to quotations from Deuteronomy and Isaiah and the Psalms, God responds to his people's wickedness, and they have been very wicked, by hardening them. And yet if you, look at, <clears throat> if you went back and looked at Deuteronomy and Isaiah and the Psalms, even where God is being very negative, very apparently rejecting, there's a sense that that's not going to be the last word. So what has happened? The people have been hardened, but not, as a whole, rejected. Then we move on. Well, what will happen then if grace is going to be the answer? And notice how that question comes in verse 11. It's a a sort of repeat of the way it was asked in verse 1. Again, I ask, verse 1, I ask then. He's moving the thing forward. He's developing another point in the argument. Are they rejected? No. But are they hardened? Well, yes. But what does that mean, that they will never recover? No, it doesn't mean that. And again, he uses the same word he used in verse 1. By no means, not at all. And at this point, we have to say, well, who's, who's they in verse 11? We think of individuals because that's how we came here this morning, this evening, even. I always worry when I say that by mistake that someone will think, he's preached this before in the morning and he's just read the word on the sheet. No, I haven't. Who's they? We think of individuals because that's how we came out. And we're interested in ourselves as individuals. But Paul's concerned with a particular situation in which the church in Rome is a mixed church. Wouldn't have been a building like this, but imagine that if the church in Rome gathered, then on this side there would have been the Jews, and on this side there would have been the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were beginning to think about that lot over there 
you see, it's very nice that these people have been saved, but clearly there's no hope for them in the future. There's no more going to be saved. That's it. So we can ignore the Jews. We can consign them to God's rejection and hardening. We can write them off. There's no future for the Jews. So we know that we're just going to be a Gentile church. Forget the Jews. Paul wants to show that there is no wholesale and absolute dismissal of his own people. It's not that he wouldn't understand the question, am I as an individual saved or not? And we'll come to that. But he wants to make it clear that if one individual Jew has been saved, if those people on that side of the church, the Jewish people exist, then you cannot dismiss the whole people. And as I said, and this is where it gets difficult, uh, sort of, we feel tense about it. As I said when I was last in Romans in chapter 9, Paul's claim is that what went wrong with the Jews isn't something, something like a sort of an accident where God said, oh, that was a bit of a mistake. Well, I better do something else. I better send Jesus. Not at all. God has actually worked through the very problem of the Jews, the transgression of the Jews, as he calls it in verse 11, in order to establish grace. When confronted with the Son of God, a righteousness that was based on works in the Jewish system, it it sort of focused its own sinfulness by rejecting him. It almost didn't have a choice that there should be leaders of a people based on works who had to reject him. And it's because of that sin, because of the claim by any human, God, you owe me, because I've been good. It's because of that dead end, that very particular dead end that the Jewish system forced itself towards. But actually, any human system will. It's because of that dead end that God acted in the death and resurrection of Jesus to to squeeze away now from this dead end to explode salvation out to the Gentiles. That's what happened, but it's not the last word for the Jews. If the current state of play, says Paul, is that the Gentiles are enriched by this Jewish transgression, how much more are we all going to be enriched as more remnant Jews, more of the people on this side of the church, turn to Christ, more people from the background of these in this side of the church, to make up the full numbers of those Jews who will ever turn to Christ. And he points out in verse 13 that he's talking not mostly to the Jews in this church, but to the Gentiles. Maybe the Jews were saying, well, okay, Paul, we hear you, but let's be realistic. You've turned your back on the Jewish system, haven't you? You're preaching faith and grace and trust. And if that's the case, you're turning your back on the Jewish system. So you're abandoning your own people. So how much the more do we have the right, if you're abandoning your own people, for us to say, well, let's forget the Jews then. Paul says, no, I haven't. Not at all. I make much of my ministry. I am bigging myself up here precisely to make the Jewish people envious. I long that some of them will be saved. And that's my hope, says Paul. After all, if a Gentile comes to Christ with no background, 
then that's like a new creation. It's a word he uses in another, ta- in another place. But if a Jewish person becomes a believer in Jesus, then that's not a new creation. That's resurrection. That's life from the dead. And he goes back to a rule in the law of Israel. Offer the first part, and the whole loaf is holy. We're in verse 16 by now. If there are some Jewish Christians here on this side of the church, first fruits, even in these days of hardening, then it is at least possible that there will be a wider scale turning to Christ. So what has happened, a hardening, what will happen, envy, and at least some repenting. And so in the light of that, what must happen? Let's not pretend that you're Jews anymore. Let's be realistic, we're all Gentiles. I imagine we are anyway. And how are we Gentiles to be part of this story? Verses 17 to 24, what must happen? Well, first, what mustn't happen? If some branches have been broken off because of unbelief, and you Gentiles have been grafted in, you must not boast over those other branches, because you are where you are because of what God has done, and only because of what God has done. The root is Jewish. And God is being faithful to have a people, an olive tree, for himself. You, somewhere up here, do not support the root. The root supports you. There are no grounds for boasting. And don't get hell hoity-toity and say, well, I'm here, I'm in, the, I'm in the tree. There, they're cut off. They're not here anymore. It's true, granted, says Paul, but you might not be here one day if you start boasting. Verse 22, you might be cut off yourself if you don't continue in God's kindness. They might be included, these Jews, Once all over again, if individuals among them are provoked to an envy that makes them act. And anyway, it's native territory to them. So they will be grafted back in much more readily. Verse 23. So what must happen then as we conclude these three sections? Well, you Gentiles must continue in the kindness of God. You must look for God to graft back Jewish people into his own tree. Well, those are the three sections, but two things seem to me worth concluding from all of that. Firstly, cast your eye back to what, verse 11. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Well, do I live my life of faith before God in such a way that it could provoke anybody to envy let alone a Jewish person who's known something of God's glory. Think of the story of the prodigal son, welcomed back into the family home with feasting and finery after being a good-for-nothing, while the well-behaved older son is furiously jealous. I've slogged my guts out for you, Dad, and you've never given me a party. It's a story that Jesus tells against the Pharisees and the Jewish system. And I have to ask, do I live as though God has welcomed me with feasting and finery? As though I've been welcomed back from the dead, as though I was lost and was found? Could anyone see my life and get a bad case of envy? 
And that connects to the second thing worth concluding. Do I then, picking up these last thoughts of Paul, do I then really appreciate the kindness of God? There is a threat here in verse, uh, verse 20. <clears throat> Be afraid. Be afraid of being cut off yourself. And when we hear that, we connect that, don't we, to what we know and what we may already be afraid of. We see people who wander from the Christian faith and we grow all kind of anxious inside. Perhaps our own assurance of salvation gets a bit wobbly and we wonder what we have to do to be really, really sure of pleasing God. What if we have doubts as we gather this evening about this or that aspect of Christian truth? And then perhaps we we know our Bibles well enough to turn to John chapter 5, which we had as a gospel reading. And we listen there to Jesus promising that the eternal verdict of life instead of death is made at the moment we believe. Well, if that's true, then what Paul is saying here seems like a contradiction, that we're not to be arrogant but to be afraid. Are we supposed to go into the rest of our evening, the rest of our week, the rest of our lives, afraid? But there is no contradiction. Because the threat, which is a real one, is not addressed to those about to give up on Christian things completely. That would ignore the warning that Paul gives us about the Jews and the urgings he tells us about kindness, the the threat that's here is not that I will walk away, but precisely that I will not walk away, but will keep my place and start to think I hold my place because I, <clears throat> out of a right. I've, uh, I'm feeling uh, pleased this evening because I was responsible for an annual meeting this morning of lots and lots of people that went relatively well and nobody stood up and said, excuse me, you've forgotten paragraph 3, subsection A. But I do not hold my place because I've just run an annual meeting for God. I don't hold my place because when it became clear earlier this afternoon that the person scheduled to read, to to prepare the prayers wasn't going to be able to do it and I volunteered. I don't hold my place because I'm going to lead the prayers. I don't do it because I've just done something special for God. If I start to think of that, then that's the point at which I'm suffering from what Paul would call, and does call here, unbelief in verses 21 and 23. He's not concerned with those who will walk away from Christian faith completely. That's not relevant to the the way his argument is moving. He's concerned with those who may perhaps stay in touch with Christian things, but think that they have a right to be in this place because God is to be impressed with them. At that point, I'm starting to behave exactly as the Jews have behaved, and that's what Paul is concerned about. Be afraid, yes, be afraid if you ever start to wander from an assurance that comes to you because you believe this stuff, you, are, you trust this stuff. No, it's by grace, it's by kindness, it's by mercy that we stand. 
So I can't help asking myself, how would my life be different if I truly believed, truly trusted in God's kindness and mercy? Would my life not just fly? Would it not be marked by joy and gladness? Would I not live every moment in the spirit of that prodigal's return? And if that were true, would there not be people dotted all over my life who were being provoked to envy, wanting just a little bit of what I was demonstrating? When people don't believe in God, the God they don't believe in is a static deity who created the world but hasn't yet got around to answering the problem of suffering. But the God I believe in is the opposite of that. He has bite. He surges down history, moving peoples and nations to where he wants them to be. He answers the question of suffering not with a proposition but with a person. He bids me put far away from me any mounting up of my works, my status, my uh, accumulation of stuff, all to impress him. And he asks me to live with a delighted faith in my acceptance before him and to travel lightly with joy. If I'm to be afraid, it's not a fear that God will stop loving me, but a fear that I will turn arrogant, revert to type, go back to being that typical human who says, I slog my guts out for you, so you, God, you owe me. And the reading of this passage for this sermon has moved me to a fresh repentance. I hope it can move you to that too. Please give up on impressing God and come fresh to this feast of bread and wine as one on whom he has had mercy. And that decision is one that we must never presume he can't make for any other human being, Jew or Gentile, black or white, rich or poor. Let's pray together. Some words of Karl Barth. To be saved does not just mean to be a little encouraged, a little comforted, a little relieved. It means to be pulled out like a log from a burning fire. Almighty God, we thank you that in Jesus Christ you have pulled us out like a log from the fire of arrogance and law-keeping and works and frustration. We give you thanks and praise and we ask to live in the light of that miracle every day. Amen.